3: You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions.
4: Tonight, it's another round of missing persons cases, as we talk about the famous Yuba County Five in Yuba City and Aaron Hedges in Big Timber, Montana. All that and more on small town secrets. Has a secret, what is yours? Hello everyone and welcome to, uh, what is this, episode 8 already of season 4, which means season finale part 2. Part two. Part one starts next episode. So this season's almost done as uh, time chugs on here. But thanks everyone for joining me tonight for this latest episode. And like I said in the intro, there we're going to do. I guess this is kind of. I don't, I don't want to call it a sequel, but we have done some missing persons cases before. We talked about Todd C's and we we talked about the guys down in brazil with their lead mask and all that strangeness uh that was a very kind of esoteric almost high strangeness versions of missing cases this is going to be a much more kind of down to earth uh straight straight laced uh accounts if you will uh a little dusting of weirdness cuz one is very much a missing 411 they both i think really would fit the description of missing 411 If you're not familiar with Missing 411, what that term is, what it means, what it refers to is uh, uh, people usually in like a state park or maybe like a national forest, stuff like that, that go missing under a certain set of circumstances. Um, I don't know what they all are. There's kind of nine factors that uh, this author, and I believe he used to be a a sheriff or some sort of, he was in law enforcement. Uh, David Pallades has written several books on this. This is, this is kind of his baby. He, uh, over the years, he's investigating these, basically because a couple of park rangers asked him to, because they're like, we don't keep records of this, and we kind of feel like someone should, so he started doing it, and now he's got, like, I don't know how many books out, and two documentaries, which are excellent. Uh, we'll talk about more more, those more kind of in the second segment, but Getting back to what I started rambling about at the beginning of this, uh for, missing 401 cases are, like I said, they are usually in a state park or like a national forest or something like that. Uh where people if people go missing under a circum set of circumstances, a certain set of circumstances, they are categorized as missing 411. And these are usually mysterious disappearances and sometimes, you know, reappearances. They people that have been found alive that just don't work, that just don't make sense. Um, You know, it's the whole thing of I looked away for five seconds, I looked back, and this person was just gone. You know, I think there's one case that I remember him talking about a while back about, like, uh, a child that went missing and then was found, you know, like, high up on a mountain that, I mean, the kid was, like, three or four or something like that, and it could not have possibly... I've gotten up the mountain unscathed, other than being a little malnourished and dehydrated, perfectly fine. And I think they found him, so that was a weird one. But that doesn't always happen, and we'll get into it later. But uh, So I wanted to talk about one of those Missing 411 cases that I think is really just ballpark classic for Missing 411, and one that I think is one of the more interesting ones to dive into, just because of its location and just... The apparent strangeness that doesn't quite fit uh, other stuff, which we'll talk about. And then, of course, we're going to talk about um, the Yuba County Five from Yuba City, which is a story of of five mentally handicapped men who went missing uh, in Northern California and were found. And the story, we have no, like, the, the story just doesn't fit uh, anything. And we have a lot of unanswered questions there. It's a pretty famous story. It's been gaining a lot of ground, especially recently, and uh, I know a lot of people have done it. Uh, Our Strange Skies did a great episode, a great podcast, back when he was still doing his podcast about it, near the end there, which is phenomenal, so if that's still up, check out Our Strange Skies and listen to that episode too, and uh, the Dark Histories podcast also did a great episode and a really great write-up on their website of this case. I used... I use their website as a source for some of this. So that's what we got going on tonight. Um, so when I started looking into just Yuba City and the area around it itself, uh, there's a lot of kind of strange things that have happened in Yuba City. So I thank for the Patreon-exclusive podcast uh, Backroads next week. I know I told if you are a Patreon I think I said I was going to maybe try to dig up some more kind of missing persons cases about it, but after looking into the city, I think I kind of want to talk about all of the other weird little things that have happened around that town. There's a bunch of little stories that I think I could combine together in a pretty nice Backroads episode, so um, I'll get into what those stories are when we start the segment proper, but I think that's a, that'll be a good, good topic for the Backroads episode next week. And uh, if you want to get in on Patreon, please visit either go to stscast.com. Uh, you can click on the support tab, and that will give you a link straight to Patreon, or go to slash uh, stscast and you can sign up there. There's a $1, a $3, a $5 level uh, with different goodies, buttons and stickers, music from the show, uh, ad free, promo free episodes, and of course, the exclusive episode of Backroads, and uh, we're trying to get a little little secret Facebook group going. I think we can do some fun stuff with that once we get some more members in there. But please check it out. Um, you can get, like I said, I've got buttons, I've got stickers. Only way that you can get those, that design, uh, is through the Patreon. That's the only way I'm ever going to make them available. So, yeah, if you would like, please check it out and help support the show and help it grow a little bit But uh, I think I'm going to be, I think I'm done. I think I'm done rambling and carrying on about that for right now. Um, But let's get into our first story, which will be about uh, the Yuba County Five from Yuba City.
3: Welcome to the new season of Obscure Anomalies, your entryway to the obscure side of life. This season, be prepared to take a look at one of Ohio's most haunted locations, or better yet, Romania's very own Huayabachu Forest. Maybe cryptids are more your style, that's the case the Tata Duende or Squonk may be more your speed. But fear not, we will also be taking a look to the skies in search of UFOs. But I don't want to spoil all the secrets that Season 3 has to offer. So whether you're into ghosts, cryptids, aliens, or folklore, Obscure Anomalies is sure to have something for you. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts as the new season starts September 30th of 2020. Until then... Be sure to check out Obscure Anomalies on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter to stay up to date. We eagerly await for you to join the Obscure.
4: Yuba City is nestled in the mountains of Northern California. It was settled in 1848 and became the county seat of Sutter County in 1856 after winning back the title from the town of Nicholas. So uh, they had it, and then somehow Nicholas became the county seat for a couple of years, and then they decided, no, we don't like that, and they gave it back to Yuba City. Over the years, Yuba has had its fair share of tragedies and scares. The 1955 Christmas flood, the B-52 crash in 1961, and in 1976, a bus crash killed 27 Yuba City high school students. Also, in 1978, five young men would go missing. And this is the story of the Yuba County Five. Five friends got together on the evening of February 24th, 1978. All they wanted to do was go to a basketball game, but they would never be seen alive after that night. All five were developmentally handicapped to varying degrees. The five met through a special needs program out of Yuba City called Gateway Projects. They quickly became a tight-knit group of friends known locally as the boys, in quotation marks. Jack Madruga, 30, worked as a dishwasher at Sunset Growers and was the only one of the five who had a car and drove. Bill Sterling, 29, also worked as a dishwasher, at first working at the same place as Jack but later finding a job at Beale Air Force Base. However, his mother had him quit when she found out that he was being repeatedly taken advantage of by some of the personnel on base. They would get him drunk and uh, make off with all of his money. Ted Weir, 32, was friendly and outgoing. He loved to meet new people and make new friends. Jack Hewitt, 24, uh, was Weir's best friend. He was the most disabled out of the five, not being able to read, write, or dial a telephone. In fact, he leaned heavily on Weir for support to help him through uh, pretty much everything, and that's why they became probably the two closest friends of the whole group. Gary Mathias joined the group later down the road. Gary fought many demons. When he was younger, he began using hallucinogenic drugs, which resulted in a mental break that put him in a psychiatric ward. He found his way into the army, but continued using drugs, and ended up going AWOL. He would have run-ins with the law for the rest of his life, from everything to bar brawls to spending nine months in jail for sexually assaulting his cousin's wife. Despite his past, he fit into the group well, and was accepted by the others, even if some of their parents weren't so sure about Matthias, The boys were avid fans of sports and enjoyed basketball. They went to attend a game at California State University in Chico. They also had a special Olympics basketball game to play themselves the next day in Rockland, California. On the night of February 24th, all five hopped in the Jack Majors 69 Mercury Montego and headed north to Chico, California. Their team won the game. On the return trip home, they stopped at Bear's Market to grab some pop, snacks, and candy, and left Chico. But they didn't go home. For some reason, they headed northeast into the Plumas National Forest. We know this because a few days after they went missing, a man named Joe Shones had seen them that night. He had driven his car up to the forest to check the weather. It had been snowing see if it was worth taking the family to a cabin for the weekend as his little volkswagen trudged up the snow it became stuck and he began to have a mild heart attack while he was trying to free his car he sat in his car with it running to remain warm at around 11:30, he saw two sets of headlights one car and a pickup a group of men along with a woman and her baby got out of the car he tried to get their attention but he was just ignored. Much later, at around 1 30, he saw lights again. And I don't think, I think this time he say, he claims he saw not so much headlights, but flashlights, because they were just kind of walking. He called out again, but this time the lights went off, and again, he was ignored. Amazingly, Shones was able to make it eight miles down the mountain road to a lodge to get help after his car ran out of gas from idling. A second witness also came forward, a clerk at Mary's County Store in Brownsville, 30 miles from where the car would eventually be found. She claimed to have seen the five men the next day after the game on the 25th of February. The clerk said that Jack Hewitt and Bill Sterling were using the phone while the others were set outside in a red pickup. She doesn't mention the car. The owner of the store vouched for her story, and the police found her credible. But to the family, it seemed out of character, especially for Jack Hewitt, who had trouble using the phone. I think it's also kind of odd that... I mean, I think that Jack Hewitt probably would have, if he would have gone in there to use the phone or something, would have much more likely have been with... Weir than than Sterling. In case it for, was for some reason that we don't know of. And also, if they were using a phone, who did they call? They didn't call anyone's family, which you would think that that's what they would have done. And when I read about this encounter, and even some of Shone's account, I almost get the sense, I almost sit there and think, is this just a big coincidence? Like, did they just see another group of people in a truck um, that just were not were not the guys at all, were not the boys at all, and it's just a big misidentification. And the, the truck and the car thing is also very weird because, like I said, the store clerk doesn't mention a car, at least that I was able to find. She talks about a truck. Shones, at the beginning, said, yeah, they had a truck, but then later he kind of backed off on that and said, "I don't know if they had a truck. I might have I might have hallucinated the truck. I was in a bad spot. I wasn't, you know, doing too great." So, was there a truck or wasn't there? And if there was, whose truck was it? As soon as he as soon as Shones heard about the five missing men, he reported what he had seen to the police. On the 28th, Jack's blue Montego was found near Bucks Lake on an old stagecoach road the car had become stuck in the snow after heading up a six-mile unpaved road. Four months would go by with no sign of any of the missing men. It wouldn't be until June 4th when some motorcycle riders taking advantage of the newly formed spring pulled over to take a break by an old park service trailer. Inside, they discover the body of Ted Weir. He was severely frostbitten ...and had missing toes. He had also lost half his body weight. As police arrived, a story started to unfold, kind of. But it was not without its questions. Outside, they found empty sea rations. These rations had been stored in a shed by the trailer. It looks like they had broken into the shed to get to the rations. Also, because they were sea rations, they were military rations they had to be opened with a military-style opener, which either Madurga or Matthias would have known how to use. Inside the trailer, they found an unopened locker, which had enough food supplies in it to feed all five men for close to five years, but it was undisturbed. There was also a propane torch on site, and with the flick of a switch, it would have provided them with the much-needed heat and fuel to, to go on for who knows how long, but it was never used as well. Two days later, on the 6th, during a new and massive search, the remains of Madruga and Sterling were discovered out in the woods four and a half miles away from the trailer. Madruga still had his car keys in his pocket. The remains of Hewitt's body would be found two and a half miles from the trailer on the next day of the search by his brother-in-law. His skull was found 50 feet away from the rest of his scattered remains. Gary Mathias has never been found. His shoes were recovered from inside the trailer, and it seemed he had taken Weir's shoes for some reason. And I read that he had, like, uh, he just had normal tennis shoes, and Weir kind of had, like, weir had, like, um, like at least kind of thicker leather shoes. I don't know if he had boots or not, but. Something a little more substantial, I think, than uh, some sneakers. So maybe he ended up taking them because they would have been better in the elements than what he was wearing. I don't know why or how he took them. If Weir, was, Weir wasn't going to make it or if he had done something too, too Weir. I don't know, but that's kind of what where my head is with that. The search for Matthias would reach into shelters and other medical institutions. He had schizophrenia, after all. And had been notorious for not taking his meds to the family members though none of this makes any sense jack madruga loved that car he had bought it new with his service allotment after coming back from vietnam in 1968. he wouldn't even let anyone else drive it why would he let it go so easily the car could have been pushed or dug out of the snow it still had fuel it wasn't wrecked it wasn't smashed up it was salvageable they could have you know gotten it out of the snow most of the boys didn't like the outdoors at all so it made no sense as to why they would have traveled 90 miles out of their way to the wilderness in the first place why not use the food stores and the propane to survive and i think a lot of it probably just boils down to you know i'm not sure if that locker was locked you know maybe they couldn't get into it maybe they just you know they didn't have time to sit around and look for that food and they just misplaced it and as far as as far as the propane thing like you know if i mean it's a it's a big propane tank and if you aren't used to dealing with those you might be intimidated a little bit by it like if you are not aware that all you got to do is flip a switch and it's on, you you know, you might not even mess with it. Many ideas have come out over the years, but to this date, nothing definitive. Did they simply take a wrong turn that night and just end up making it worse by thinking like so many would in that situation that eventually civilization would have to be found? Like, have you ever gotten a little lost and you're just like, you know, I know that if I just keep pressing on, eventually I'm going to come somewhere, you know, but when you're six miles up in a mountain and it's snowing, you may not get there. Did they go to visit some other friends of Matthias's, and in return get lost? He had friends in nearby Forbes town, but had not spoken to them in a year and none of them seemed aware of any visit. Did they go to help out this mysterious woman and her child, or were they led out there by her for some nefarious purpose many have laid the blame at gary Mathias's feet he was the only one with a history of violence and he was prone to have violent psychotic breaks when not on his medication is it possible that he for some reason had led them out there and is responsible for their deaths no one really knows or has any real evidence to what happened that night in 1978 and sadly we probably never will. And I think that's the case. I think it's just going to kind of remain a mystery unless somehow Matthias turns up. But I think that's unlikely. I think he has probably suffered the same fate as the other ones. Maybe he just went off in a different direction. Maybe he made it a little further, but at this point I'm sure that his remains are just out there scattered like the rest of them and, you know, one of these days maybe we'll find them, but I don't, I don't think, I don't think any of them made it out, and I don't know if it was Matthias's um, fault or not. At the very least, I don't know if he, if he, if he was involved, if he did it on purpose, uh, like it might have just been a psychotic break. But that's what this story really is. It's just question after question, hypothesis after hypothesis. It's really easy to see why people call this uh, America's Death Love Pass which one day I might do on this show as well. But it's a tragic story. It's one that really tugs at my heartstrings. And I don't know, I hope one of these days we find some sort of answer, but I think that's few and far between, sadly. But why don't we uh, move on to our next story, uh, the story of Jason Hedges and uh, his, his ordeal in the crazy mountains.
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. If you're
0: looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
4: Big Timber is the county seat of Sweetgrass County in Montana, with a population of only 1,600. Uh, I know that sounds like it's not a huge population, and it's not, but there's only like 800,000 people that live in all of Montana. It's named after the nearby Big Timber Creek. The town is is located east of the Crazy Mountains. It's even home to the Crazy Mountains Museum. You know what? This might be the first episode where both towns have been county seats. The Crazy Mountains are a small 40-mile-long island of mountains in western Montana. They are the youngest mountain range in the country. Uh, They are known as a mystical place by the native Crow tribe known for being a mystical and unpredictable place, as many would find out after Aaron Hedges went missing, only for his remains to turn up years later, 11 miles from the campsite he started from. Aaron Hedges was a 38-year-old hunter from Bozeman, Montana. On September 3rd of 2014, Aaron, along with his friends Joe Depew and Greg Leitner, headed out to the crazy mountains for a week-long elk hunting trip. Once in the mountains, they started the trek up to their campsite at Cottonwood Beach on Campfire Lake. Things did not start off smoothly. The group had brought two horses and a mule. And on the way up to the lake, they had a horse wreck, which is an actual term, Um, apparently. It sounds a little weird, but it's just when, you know, the horses get spooked and they... Are hard to calm down, so it became spooked the mule, and spilled almost all of Aaron's gear over a cliff. Actually, I think all of their gear was probably on that mule. This uh, did little to dismay the hunters. Not only did they know the mountains like the back of their hands, but they had set up caches of supplies all along the mountains. After a couple of days into the trip, Aaron decided to hike north to retrieve supplies from a cache by Sunlight Lake. By the next day, he hadn't returned. The men were using Garmin Rhinos, a two-way radio and GPS tracker. These units display the location of where they are to one another. His friends noticed that the rhino he was carrying was not on the trail heading south back to them, but far on a trail heading to the east. This was odd. As I said, he knew the area well. Even if he got turned around, he should have eventually noticed that the creek that runs along both trails was flowing the wrong way, or at the very, very least, be like, hold on, I'm not back yet. Like, it wasn't a huge hike north, but it would, you know, you would have gone so far east that eventually you just would have been like, I should be there by now. Joe and Greg went searching for him the next day, but their search was cut short due to a snowstorm, which had suddenly formed. The temperature was in the upper 50s when they had gotten to the mountains, but now it was in the teens, and 18 to 24 inches of snow were dumped on the crazy mountains. Joe and Greg had to leave the mountains. They contacted the Sweetgrass County Sheriff's Department, who told them to contact the Park County Sheriff's Department, since their campsite was actually in Park County. A search was organized. Park County started from the west and made their way inward, as Sweetwater County did the same from the east, and they met in the middle. The search turned up his boots. They were found placed neatly side by side beside a bench beside a creek, five miles from the campsite at Campfire Lake, which means wherever he was, he was now barefoot. Around the bench, they also recovered a water bladder. They also found a fire bundle, a fire pit, and the waist straps from his backpack, which are the, the straps at the bottom of it that, that you clamp to get around your waist. The strangest thing is that people had been searching in that very area the day before and didn't find anything. The official search ended on September 22nd, 2014. Nine months to the day later, on June 22nd of 2015, Roger Beslanovich was at his daughter and son-in-law's ranch, which bordered the eastern edge of the crazy mountains. He was helping them mend their perimeter fence. Roger found a backpack, an orange hunting vest, uh, some other clothing, and Hedge's wallet, all up on a ridge close to the ranch while taking a break from helping with the fence. He packed up these belongings, thinking that it was just some early hunter that had just left them there. On his way back he stumbled across a thermos and an empty energy drink. These possessions were found six miles from Campfire Lake. The odd thing about this discovery is that from the vantage point, especially of like uh So, I guess something I did kind of just fail to mention here. Uh, the thermos was found like just sitting on a rock. It wasn't found on the ground. It had been placed on a rock. The uh, backpack had been placed against a tree. It wasn't just thrown there. So from these vantage points, not only could you see the ranch, but you could also see a road leading to the ranch. So he has been out in the wilderness for no, who knows how long, in a foot of snow, two feet of snow. The snow melts. The snow came back. He doesn't have shoes on. And yet he makes it to a place where he can sit on a rock, drink a monster energy drink, see civilization in front of him, see the end of his plight. There's a road. Not only is there a road, but there is a ranch with people in it. That will help him. And he doesn't go down there. He continues on. Then, on August 8th, some guests on a dude ride at another ranch called Sweetwater Ranch, discover the skull of Aaron Hedges. Investigators would later find 70% of his skeletal remains. They would be found 11 miles from Campfire Lake. The investigation is ongoing. Was it hypothermia? It may have been, as shedding clothes is a major red flag for hypothermia. But making it 11 miles in and out of snowy weather, with no shoes on, seems out of the realm of possibility. The story of Aaron Hedges will sadly go down as just another tale of the curse of the Crazy Mountains. And I didn't really get into it, but there is some stories that the uh, Crow tribe had cursed the Crazy Mountains uh, because they were made to flee, to leave it by our amazing government. But that is Aaron Hedges' story, and... Why it registers with me, why it rings so strange is that last bit, if you couldn't tell. The fact that, you know, it, hypothermia, this, that, and the other thing, the fact that he was right there, he could see it. There's no way he couldn't see it, unless maybe he couldn't see it, I don't know. But he, all he had to do was walk down that ridge. It wouldn't even have been hard, and he would have been fine. But for some reason... He continues going, I think, north a little bit, and then he is found, his remains are found at another ranch. It's just so weird. Like, that's what makes it not just a missing person case because it is such a head-scratcher. And, you know, you start digging in these 401 cases and you will see a lot of that strangeness. Um, But, like I said, there's a lot of books... There are two documentaries. This one is from the second one called uh, Missing 411, The Hunted. And there is another one before that, which is just kind of general cases. Uh, I know this one is on Amazon Prime. I think both of them are on Hulu. They might both be on Amazon Prime as well. But uh, if you get a chance to sit down and watch, just watch both of those back to back. They're both really good. I like the second one better. I think it has uh, more interesting cases in it. And uh, I just think it's it's got a lot more meat on the bones, but those have been our stories for tonight. We're going to take uh, a musical break. I have a new song that I, I you know I kind of mentioned last week. We played another new song. This song is called Space Station Thirteen. Um, it is just kind of weird ambient. I don't even know if it's ambient to be honest, but uh, just you're gonna take a trip to uh, an ill-fated space station out in the middle of of deep space. And like I said, I started doing this song and I, I kind of wrote this little piece for it that didn't quite fit. And that's what ended up turning into the track that we listened to last episode. But this is the, this is the other new song. This is space station 13. I'll be back after this with uh, some local headlines. We are back and we have uh, a few new stories to talk about. I actually had to go back and scramble. I guess I didn't have to scramble that hard, and find a replacement because I was going to do uh, the big UFO story that came out out of New Jersey of all these people that had pulled on the side, pulled to the side of the interstate, and uh, filmed this. That is one cat. If everyone heard that, I know it sounded like ten, but that is one cat zooming back and forth for no apparent reason. But it was this big kind of news story. Uh, a lot of, a lot of social media uploads of all these people seeing this very well defined UFO. And uh, turns out, Goodyear blimp, it was just the Goodyear blimp, <laughs> but with like it's like it's like its display on, so it kind of at the top of it looked like a UFO, and then like it had a creepy green light at the bottom of it. But it was just the display, the the screen, the big LCD screen that's on the side of the Goodyear blimp. So, but I was able to come up with a with a couple of good ones. Few good ones. So the first one is from the Alex City Outlook, written by Cliff Williams. This is a Bigfoot hunter arrested for attempted murder. An Alexander City woman has been arrested for attempted murder in Shelby County. Gwendolyn Michelle Jones, 39, is in the Shelby County jail after firing her weapon at a sleeping male in the Shelby County home on September 2nd. Jones shot a Ruger LCP 380 handgun multiple times at a victim while he was sleeping, court records state. Once the victim awoke, he witnessed Jones standing across the room holding the pistol. She then fired additional rounds while standing in the hallway. The Outlook reported last month about Jones' affiliation with Bigfoot Research. As the Southeast Regional Coordinator in the video of Jones, recorded by the Outlook, Jones said that she was helping conduct a search for sasquatch in a portion of the talladega national forest she stated she was in the military and law enforcement for 15 years jones also told the outlook that she had discovered adult male and female sasquatch in the area along with juveniles and that she had left food weekly for the creatures jones was searching for others across the southeast who have credible sightings of sasquatch Jones had been charged with attempted murder, a Class A felony, attempted first-degree domestic violence, a Class B felony, and first-degree criminal trespassing, a Class A misdemeanor. According to the Shelby County Jail website, Jones has an $81,000 bond available to her. So there you go. I'm glad uh, he uh, survived the ordeal. Uh, I hope she didn't think he was Bigfoot. Uh, This next one is kind of weird. It is uh, from fox6now.com. It's written by Bill Miston. Man finds apparent brain on Racine Beach, which I believe is in Racine, Wisconsin, which I think I just did a story last episode, episode before that from Racine. Racine police are looking to determine not only the what, but the why after what appeared to be a brain was found on a beach Tuesday, September 15th. Police are still working to figure out if it was found along the beach at Samuel Miles Park on Tuesday morning, if it is human or not. For the man who found it, the discovery is still hard to believe. Jimmy Cinda said, You never know what you'll find along the shore. The construction worker takes a stroll along the beach each morning. Collecting sea glass and random stuff because I like to do artwork at home with the stuff that I find, Cinda said. What he found Tuesday was definitely out of the ordinary. I don't really know how to explain it. It didn't register. I was just like, what is this? said Cinda. I came across a square package wrapped in aluminum foil and around it, it had a pink rubber band. Curiosity got to me so I popped it open and, and it looked like a chicken breast. Kind of. It took a little bit for it to really register what was going on and that it was a brain. Flowers and what appears to be paper with Mandarin characters printed on it were also found with the suspected brain. Sinda said he found some city employees working nearby and asked them the same question he was thinking. And they're like, yep, that's a brain, Sinda said. Sinda then called the police. They responded similarly according to Sinda, yep, it looks like a brain. Sinda normally walks the beaches further north and said it has been a while since he had been to Myers Park. On some level, he is glad he found what he did. There's a lot of kids and families that are down here, and what happens if, and what would happen if a kid would have found it, said Cinda. Police told Fox 6 News that the brain is not believed to be human, however. Authorities are waiting on official confirmation from the Racing County Medical Examiner's Office. And there are some pictures, uh they're blurred, but if you do a little searching, I think you can find them unblurred. And uh, yep, it's a brain. I don't, I don't know if it's a human brain or not. It looks very human, but it could also be just a big brain to something else. I don't know. I'm not a brain doctor. I don't know what they fucking look like. Uh, and the next one is uh, you probably might have seen this making the rounds too. This is from uh, thesun.com. sun.com. Uh, two spooky apparitions spotted running across the road in front of a petrified driver. At, this is a big headline. At Framed Gettysburg Site by Janine Factitum. The chilling footage was shot by a 46-year-old grade Yuling, Greg Yuling, sorry, who was visiting the historical battleground with his family last week. Yuling said, we, had, we just went there as tourists to learn more about the history of the Civil War and to see the old battleground, where the Gettysburg Address was given, and all that stuff. We were driving along one night when we started hearing noises. I heard things to the left, and my uncle heard things to the right, and there was a fog. But the fog was weird. It was only one patch, not dispersed. Then we saw these shapes moving in the darkness. They were the size of humans. One of them ran right through a cannon. Ewing said the situation was weird. It was scary. It was crazy. My uncle got so scared, he rolled up the window. We went back and watched the videos over and over again, and then we blew them up on the big screen to get a closer look that made us even more freaked out he said it was really exciting but i also got this strange ominous feeling like somebody was telling me to go back there yingling said added adding i couldn't go to sleep but i was creeped out so i didn't go the brutal battle of gettysburg was fought between the union and confederate forces during the american civil war in july of 1863 it is estimated that between 46 and 51,000 people 5,000 horses died in the three-day bloodbath, with many more seriously wounded. Many injured soldiers were left bleeding in agony on the battlefield while fighting continued to rage around them. Many more soldiers perished in makeshift triage units that had been assembled on the uh, periphery of the site. Jung said, I've heard people say they can catch videos of ghosts around there, but we were so skeptical until that night. And the videos are on this website. You can find it all over the place. You'll find it on YouTube like that. Very interesting videos. It is a very foggy... uh, They are in a very foggy patch. There's two cannons. And you see what looks to be a human form. Uh, It's just kind of like a blob form. It's just white, kind of transparent. You can see the legs. You can see the arms. You can see the head. You can see it go through that cannon and kind of come into the road. And then just kind of disperses. Uh, interesting video, check out this news article it's linked, checked out, all the news articles are all linked, and uh, take a look at that video, it's a good one, it's an interesting one, but that has been this uh, episode's Local Headlines And here we go with the last segment of the show Your Small Town Secrets we are continuing with the the magnum opus of Cosmic Ray and his tales of uh, Desert Center and the nearby areas like Blythe and a couple of other towns out there. Um, like I said, I've been linking his article as it grows in the show notes so you can go and take a look at it uh, all the way through. It's about Desert Center. It uh, involves George Adamski, which I've already done an episode on. You can go back and find that one and listen to that. But we've been following... Uh, Reporter Paul Bernard around as he uh, digs up these uh, UFO reports, and I'm loving this. I know we've been doing this for a few weeks, but I just love like old 1950s, like old UFO reporting and old UFO reports. They're just so they're just so charming, and they're so fresh. And everyone, you know, just just the way you know the the terminology, like of calling everything like a saucer, but not being like Ironic or anything about it. Like, that's what they called him. We called them saucers, damn it. And I just, I love it all. So, we're going to go on with, uh, I believe this is part three of uh, the story. So, here we go. On the day following the Blue Book Magazine correspondent series of interviews conducted with personnel of Blythe, California at KWOR Radio, Paul C. Bernard continued where he left off, driving out to the station manager John M. Wage's home to pick up Mrs. Wage's and their 10-year-old son Johnny Jr., who were scheduled to direct the reporter to the exact spot where the now-famous contactee George Adamski claimed to have photographed a Venusian scout ship and communicated with its pilot, telepathically at first and then vocally. No sooner had Bernard pulled into Wage's driveway than he was greeted by John Sr., who introduced him to his wife and son before heading out off to work in his own car. The mother and son then situated themselves comfortably in the back of Bernard's car while Mrs. Wages gave directions from the back seat as to the route that the journalist should take to get to the small and sunbaked settlement of Desert Center some 48 miles to the west of Blythe off of U.S. Route sixty seventy. While Bernard was driving the long stretch Mrs. Wages talked incessantly about George Adamski and speculated on how life might be on Venus, the moon, and Mars. She even brought a copy of the book that Adamski co-wrote with British nobleman Sir Desmond Leslie along with her, just in case they needed to reference anything once they arrived at the site. She was proud to have a copy that Adamski personally autographed for her. John Jr. rolled down the window on his side of the car and put his head down on his mother's lap. Just wake me up when we get there, he declared. Apparently, he had been the site on a few occasions. When Bernard pulled off Route 6070 into Desert Center, there wasn't much to see. Small diner, service station, and a handful of houses. So, this is the flying salsa Mecca of the world, mused Bernard. Actually, Paul, we have a little way more to go. The landing site is somewhere in the vicinity of the mile marker at 10.2 miles from the state road, that we are now on. It cuts across the Colorado desert to the northeast, leading out to Parker Dam, explained Mrs. Wages. There was nobody else on the desolate road, but Norm was glad that he took his time to fill up his car and as well check the battery and oil. As soon as they exited the U.S. route, Mrs. Wages, with ample foresight, packed and brought along a picnic, lunch of fried chicken, potato salad, and soda pop. No sooner than Bernard and party arrived at the marker than another car was seen to park alongside the road. At least they knew they were not alone anymore and somebody else was out there checking out the situation. Little Johnny poked his head out the window and scanned the horizon. Look, he shouted, there's a Venusian over there. Johnny brought a pair of binoculars along with him just in case any extra, extraterrestrials or flying saucer occupants were to show up. He focused the field glasses on the small being, slipping and sliding down the lava strewn slopes about a quarter mile of away. Ah Aw, shucks, declared Johnny Jr. It's another kid. So who drove the car? wondered Bernard. Can I see your binoculars, Johnny? asked the reporter. Sure, Mr. Bernard, no problem, said Johnny Jr., handing them over. Hmm. There are two women out there. They look to be elderly, maybe in their late sixties or seventies. They were making their way down a treacherous hillside. Bernard and Mrs. Wages walked over to talk to them. One was the frolicking boy's grandmother, and the other was her lady friend. They drove all the way from Portland, Oregon, a whopping 1,345-mile trip, just to see this place where a Venusian had allegedly come to Earth in a flying saucer. The expanded party reconnoitred the area for about an hour until they came across a spot that matched the descriptions provided by Adamski in his book. It was a vast clearing, surrounded by windward sandhills, just as Adamski clearly stated in his epic, Flying Saucers Have Landed. There was also an abundance of other evidence that we had found once at the right spot. Hundreds of other saucer researchers had come to this godforsaken locale during the past year or so and set up camp, wistfully hoping that Orthon and the Venusian scout ship would return. The clearing was littered with tin cans, and charred remains of campfires. There were even old mattresses with protruding bed springs and crude wooden tables. The campsites had clearly been abandoned. However, and Bernard pondered, what new saucer landing zone they might have flocked to. After all, there were plenty of new contactees emerging on the saucer circuit, with lots of them right there in California. He added rumors about a Venusian flying saucer base being located right under Mount Shasta, in the north uh, northern part of the state. Later that afternoon, Bernard, Mrs. Wages, and her son were back in Blythe. After the correspondent dropped them back at their home, Bernard spoke once again with Blythe High School science teacher, George Wixom, at his residence. What do you think of this Adamski fellow, George? You're of a scientific mindset. Is he legit? Well, Paul, human belief is a strange thing. No matter how strongly you believe something that hasn't actually been proved, there is always a tiny reoccurring doubt in the back of your head. Normally, I would dismiss Adansky's claims out of hand, since Venus is probably too hot to support any life as we know it. Which, if I might interject just a little bit, uh, is a big coincidence right here, because we just got a big news story that, uh, yes, there might actually be uh, some form of life on Venus. However, he does have a lot of witnesses who have signed affidavits attesting to the reality of his encounter and the mysterious being, Orthon, apparently said he was from Venus. Wixom then informed Bernard that his arrival in Blythe was fortuitous, for there would be a citizens' meeting later that night when a San Diego newspaper man, F.E. Rogers, was to play a tape-recorded message about Venusians coming to Earth in their flying saucers. Wixom was slotted to emcee the event. "'Do you know Rogers and have you heard his tape?' asked Bernard. "'No, I haven't,' declared Wixom, Then he smiled and added, but I think you uh, have to keep an open mind when you're trying to get to the truth. Bernard realized that he had arrived in the desert at the most opportune time. News of Roger's forthcoming presentation had spread far and wide. Grady Setzler, the editor of the Palo Verde Times, had also arrived in Blythe to cover this story. Bernard and Wixom met up with the editor in a local cafe, the Blythe Coffee Shop, prior to the big meeting. Sessler seemed to be keeping an open mind about flying saucers and Venusians, too. Mine is only a layman's point of view, he related to Bernard and the science teacher, but I don't rule out the saucers. Only an ignorant person would do that. Others were hanging around in the local restaurant waiting for the arrival of of Rogers and the start of the momentous meeting. Blythe Mayor A.J. Alexander, on the other hand, refused to commit himself one way or the other, like the typical politicians, all he had to say was, anything is possible, but that is all I'll say. A local minister opined that church-going folks are sometimes afraid to admit that saucers may be a reality, but he had to question, does God have so little ability that he couldn't have created other worlds and humans to populate them? Even Lois Cummer, a waitress at the cafe, shared a hunch she had that the flying saucers come from another world. But I'd sure like to no, know, she told Bernard because my husband Jerry, a radio installations man, has seen those saucers time and time again. He told me that their speed and method of flight defy anything on this planet. Hitting a snag. People from everywhere were showing up at the cafe, crowding all the tables, standing room only. They were all waiting for the green light to move over to the high school auditorium for Roger's flying saucer presentation. Suddenly, the boys from the KOI... KYOR radio burst into the Blythe coffee shop with some bad news. Permission to use the high school for the saucer meeting had been revoked by the school board. Bernard managed to catch up with the superintendent of schools, Mural, (laughs) Mural M. Miller, who proclaimed, The board cannot afford to go out on a limb. We can't have it appear that we are sponsoring this meeting and officially endorsing Rogers and his tape recording. At that moment, a local rancher, Clyde Cowman, offered the use of his home for the meeting. Partially solving the committee's problem, the last-minute change plus the fact that the new me- the new meeting venue was seven miles outside of Blythe might cut down the attendance substantially. Surprisingly, when the Blue Book magazine correspondent actually reached the ranch house, there were only there were more than seventy people crammed into the sprawling living room. The local science teacher served as the MC and announced the meeting would be delayed for about twenty minutes, allowing sufficient time for any stragglers to arrive. By the time the meeting was convened, there were more than 80 in attendance, and even more were expected. And, and that's the end of part three. I'm kind of digging this. It's like a, it's like an old radio serial that we're getting every week, and uh, there'll, be, there'll be some more of it to come. We might even be able to finish the season up with it. But that has been this uh, episode's edition of uh, Your Small Town Secrets. And that will about do it for uh, episode 4.08. If uh, you have a story, an encounter uh, that you want to share about your small town or a small town that you've lived in, there are plenty of ways that you can get it to me. You can go to stscast.com, scroll down to the bottom of the main page. There's an email form there that you can send me your story. Uh, You can get at me on social media. I am most active on Twitter. That is at STSCast. I am also on Facebook, which is also at STS Cast. And Instagram, which is at stscast.gram. Uh, so you can get me that story that way. Uh, what else can you do? Uh, you know, so just get a newspaper article from your hometown. Great. You've got a ghost experience, great. Uh so wanna send me that. You want to get online, you want to get on Skype or something and do an interview, we can do that. Or you could record your own your own little segment and send it in. I would be, I would love to be able to you know throw one of those up. Uh, plenty of ways to do it. If you have a story to share, we can get on the show. No problem there. While you're at stscast.com, you will find links, uh, sources, pictures to this episode, every episode, as well as uh, ways to support the show, such as the Patreon, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, if that's not your thing but you do want to throw some some ducats towards the show to help support it, you can do a PayPal donation or you could buy some merch. I've got t-shirts. I've got coffee mugs. I've got stickers, phone cases, all that jazz. Just put up a new shirt a couple weeks ago uh, that is a Mothman. That is a Point Pleasant shirt that a lot of people have dug. So you can go check that out. And I think that is about it for the show. Uh, like I said, coming up, Next episode is part one of the two-part season finale of season four, and then we're going to... I'll take my little break, which I just realized, like, the way that the schedule's going, I'm going to be off for the week of Halloween, but um, I have some stuff planned. I have some stuff I'm going to upload throughout on the feed for you guys and the Patreons on their feed as well. A couple of extra little goodies for Halloween. So there will be something something on the feed, some content for Halloween. But uh, I'll be back. Uh, if you're on Patreon, I'll be back next weekend. If you are not on Patreon, uh, for shame. I kid, I kid. If you're not on Patreon, I'll be back in a couple weeks. Uh, so until then, remember, every town has a secret. What is yours?
3: Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula
0: companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials?